everyone. Welcome to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. Today we'll be talking to C.V. Vitolo Haddad, a doctoral candidate in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication and the Director of Debate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Specifically, we will be talking about C.V.'s recent article in Rhetoric Society Quarterly, The Blood of Patriots, Symbolic Violence, and, quote, the West, unquote. Yeah, this is a really fascinating conversation that touches on aspects all ranging from far-right uh, fascism uh, and the rhetorics thereof all the way to the power of debate and deliberation, the limits uh, that we should place on that, as well as the sort of tactical considerations for talking to, communicating with, and disagreeing with uh, fascists as well. Yeah, and we try to you know get into both the practical politics of this as well as some of the rhetorical theory. So if you're interested in demagoguery, as well as how to organize against the far right. Uh, we think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Absolutely. Let's go to that interview. Let's do it. So welcome, everybody. Uh, today, we're very excited to be speaking with C.V. Vitolo Haddad, a doctoral candidate in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication and the Director of Debate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. C.V., thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I was hoping we could start out just by having you tell us a little bit about some of your work, both as a scholar and as an activist, and how that brought you to what you're currently studying today. Yeah, as a, as a scholar, uh, my background is as a bacterial geneticist, and so working in genetic engineering labs. And then I really love debate. I did debate in high school and college, and my whole life just sort of wanted to be a debate coach. And it turns out that being a genetic engineer is not, in fact, the, the skill set you need to coach college debate. Shocking. <laughs> sure, sure. And so I wound up coaching debate for Wake Forest University and getting a master's in communication and studying vaccines uh, and sort of like public sentiment around vaccines, which weirdly enough, one would have never expected it when I started doing this in like 2010 all of a sudden started merging with this weird right-wing white nationalism phenomenon. And so I started getting sort of interested in the overlap in those channels of online discourse and also just like the way that they understood science. And before you knew it now, my full-time interest now is really just like race realism, how people on the far right in particular understand genetics, kind of what they use genetic data for in terms of kind of like public argumentation, deliberation. Yeah, and so you have been doing work analyzing the Proud Boys specifically, and we wanted to ask you what brought you to studying them and if you could just describe them a little bit for us. Yeah, so uh, it was about, gosh, two, three years ago now, one of my students came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm in this other class and I have really weird feelings about the TA and I can't really put my finger on it, but like, anything you think to that. Um, and I thought that that was like a, a really, you know, un certainly unusual. I've never had a student come to me and be like, I feel weird about a TA in another department in a like totally unrelated field. But yeah. I decided to kind of like poke around for a little bit. And lo and behold, this person is like full 1488 Nazi, no you know, like boosting, <laughs> like uh, Hitler did nothing wrong, right? Like full blown. And I'm just like, oh, shit. Oh, no, I think I remember that this was at UW, right? Yeah, this at the, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh uh, go God. Badgers. Not for this reason, but for many <laughs> other things we do well besides harboring uh, Nazis. 
And it turned out, you know, I kind of like did a did a quick background check, you know, like, I don't know, these, these are the things I do with my time now. Um, <laughs> sure. He had actually been arrested at his previous university for a hate crime spree where he like, you know, spray painted swastikas. I mean, the full edgy Nazi college boy experience. Oh um, Flyered professors mailboxes with like bomb threats and all these things. And so honestly, credit to my student, very perceptive, uh, really yeah. like just had a gut feeling about this person. Um, but they were trying to join the Proud Boys here in Wisconsin. And I had actually never heard of the Proud Boys up until that point and kind of did a double take, like, I'm sorry, this this group is a what? Um, a fraternal <laughs> organization for men who love the West? Right. <laughs> uh, so so that's what, how I got interested in studying the Proud Boys. Wow, that's a, that's a really fascinating, like, direct route into it. Like, you actually had lived experience with somebody who, you know, perceived, uh, you know, like a white supremacist fascist in their midst. That's fascinating. Yeah, and, and I was never going to make it, you know, a part of my, my, like, formal research. But it kind of wound up that way because... I wrote one article about them, just a medium post. You know, I was just like, what the hell is this? And I, I, I don't know, I like blogging to like try to keep myself writing. Tell my, tell my advisor I'm doing it to keep myself writing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, no, we would know nothing about that doing this podcast. So obviously uh, that's very foreign to us. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're totally, I prom- this is totally millennials doing the, the writing for 10 minutes a day thing. I promise. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so, so I wrote an article about the Proud Boys that was just kind of like, well, this is weird and seems bad. And I got a cease and desist letter from Gavin McGinnis. Wow. Uh, and wow. I was just like, I'm sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not. How dare you? Number one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And Gavin McGinnis, just for, for context for listeners who don't know, that he's the leader of the Proud Boys, correct? Uh, yeah. So no longer. He, he founded the Proud oh, Boys. Um, Gavin is the co-founder of Vice. They split about 10 years ago because of creative differences. And at this point, I can't imagine what those might have been. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. Yeah, but you know, he's a a multimillionaire who makes his money by being a mouthpiece for ridiculous nationalist ideas, you know. Yeah, the usual. Yeah, very, very normal, just typical things that people in the media do nowadays. So, as the kids say, very cool, very legal. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Gavin is no longer the head of the Proud Boys because Gavin is, in fact, an immigrant himself. And so, when the FBI labeled the Proud Boys as a domestic terror threat, Gavin decided to throw all of them under the bus and just quit. Wow. Well, it's just the beautiful irony of being an anti-immigration zealot who then has to leave the group you created because you're worried about getting deported because of your own harsh stances, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, that's brutal. Uh, It would be poetic if anything bad would actually ever happen to people with that much money, but alas. (laughs) But alas. Yeah, so in preparation for this interview, we read your article, The Blood of Patriots, Symbolic Violence and the West, and... You have a really great summary of kind of the Proud Boys, I guess you could call it a policy platform, if you will, (laughs) which is 13 core tenets, minimal government, maximum freedom, anti-political correctness, anti-drug war, anti-masturbation, closed borders, anti-racial guilt, anti-racism, pro-free speech, pro-gun rights, glorifying the entrepreneur, (laughs) venerating the housewife, and reinstating a spirit of Western chauvinism. You know, the irony about this is that as you're reading it, my primary thought is this is nearly indistinguishable from the Democratic National Convention platform. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's devastating. Yeah. It's very centrist. Yeah, it's, I mean, they, I guess, do a lot of work to kind of 
cloak quite how radical and white nationalist they are right well they they both have this kind of similar veneer of like respectability politics right like i mean they yeah you know they ostensibly stand for anti like anti-racism was the one that kind of jumped out to me where i was like man citation needed on that one like where exactly right. how do you even square that if with at all? anything they've done yeah, yeah. exactly and I mean, and, and part of the great thing about the right is that the right is convinced that everyone on the left is triggered by everything that they do. And so nobody ever, you know, watches their shows or listens to their podcasts or reads their magazines. And so they say things that they probably shouldn't say out loud. Like, for example, Gavin McGinnis, you know, says, you know, oh, people say the Proud Boys, that sounds so gay. Or like, you know, oh, you have all of these these tenants like anti-racism you know, but if you're really a dangerous gang, right? Like you don't name yourselves the butchers. If you have to name yourselves the butchers, then you're probably not that tough. If you really <laughs> want to be a violent gang, you name yourself something nice, like the daffodils or the proud boys. And it's like, well, there it is. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's that seems to be kind of a common strategy on the right, too, like the far right, especially. I think what was Richard Spencer's think tank name? Was it like National Policy Institute or something? Just really like something yeah, really, exactly. yeah, yeah, something just very like uncontroversial, un uncontroversial, or sounding like it's just just like another normal organization. Yeah, and and you know you wouldn't think that this would have ever had resonances for someone studying anti-vax conspiracy theories, but you have you know the National Vaccine Information Center. And oh. Oh, the God, that's right. You know, and they're pretty much playing the same game with science on uh, both sides. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to return to that at some point because that how they use genetics and science is kind of uh, fascinating, too. We also wanted to talk about, you know, one of the terms that's really central to your arguments. So this was your article in Rhetoric Society Quarterly, which it was actually a, a special issue on demagoguery. So that was kind of the the framing of, of this argument that you were making. And your definition of demagoguery, you know, from this kind of rhetorical standpoint, it felt to me a little bit distinctive from some of the other definitions I've run across, given that yours seems to entail that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you here, uh, demagoguery doesn't happen in a vacuum, but it relies on this widespread cultural feeling of precarity or displacement uh, that's exploited by specific demagogues. So I guess in this case, in our current cultural moment, what do you believe is engendering the feelings of precarity that's sort of motivating groups like the Proud Boys? Wow, that's such a great question. I mean, you know, the, the question of what is it that's motivating the precarity is, I think, the the central tension between the way that I use demagoguery and I think maybe the conversations that other people have and concerns that people have voiced in the literature about Will people just use demagoguery as a, a slur, right? We'll still always use it as a slur against anyone who they don't like, who's a political leader on the other side, you know? Right, right. People on the right use, I mean, like accuse basically any strong leftist rhetor of being a demagogue, right? So yeah, it, absolutely. It, it's very difficult to get our hands around what, you know, what defines it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, you do see that concern coming from, and, and from particularly some of the more conservative members of our discipline, you know, saying, well, what if... What if the left just uses it to smear everyone, which I think is kind of, like you say, a, a, an ironic concern. Yeah, um, yeah, but, yeah. But the response to that, I think, is, well, no, you can't just use it to smear anyone because it has to come with a set of falsifiable, unmeasurable material circumstances, right, that create demagoguery and understanding it as a form of rhetoric, as, you know, Patricia Roberts Miller says, I think is, is really helpful. But yeah, you know, and then we can say, well, what are the material factors that produce that precarity? Uh, and I think right now, the the main ones that people will point to in the Proud Boys, and I'll kind of say it's unique for the Proud Boys, because while they are very aesthetically similar to kind of rural white supremacist militias, 
the fact that they're arising in an urban context is actually pretty important um, because, you know, the, the kinds of poverty that people are experiencing, what it means to consider yourself precarious is pretty different for an urban group like the Proud Boys compared to more rural patriot militias. But, but it is things like, you know, stagnating wages, not being able to afford housing, right? Like the fact that most people exist uh, in a state of near brokenness, um, you know, where they can't afford medical bills if one happens. It, it's a, a lot of those things that are not surprising to any millennial. And it's just a question of what what direction people take with that fear, right? If they kind of lean into it, which is what the Proud Boys have done, um, or if they, they try to lean away from it. That's a really good distinction. And, and I'm glad that you brought in that sort of distinction between rural and urban felt precarity as well, because those material circumstances are definitely different. I mean, and that actually, this was kind of an ancillary question that I had too, was, is there like a type of person that ends up joining the Proud Boys? I mean, they look to right. be mostly like white men for the most part. I mean, that's a stereotype, right? But I mean, is it mostly people... I, I was yeah, in, well, like, what about, like, the class content of, yeah, the, of this right. movement? Like, be, because the sense, I mean, I mean, obviously, McGinnis is a rich media mogul, and, and my sense is that a lot of, at least most prominent members are, you know, are not part of the class that they claim to be speaking for. Yeah, there's a, a huge difference to a regional variance and a, a, t- a temporal variance with their membership. So in the beginning, when it started out as Gavin McGinnis and some dudes in New York, it was a much you know, higher class, as you point out, you know, Gavin is someone who likes to wear a jean jacket and, you know, grow his beard out and look like a hipster and curse. But <laughs> right, but he right. is a, you know, he is still a member of the elite wealthy, uh, you yes, know, yep, uh, yes. unquestionably. And so and so his friends, when it started out, very much looked like that. But as it started to expand, it did so with a very working class narrative of patriotism and one that appealed to people who were experiencing more genuine kinds of precarity. And I think also we shouldn't undersell how important the the medium of social media has been in making something like the Proud Boys happen, kind of like the, the way that those platforms are structured to produce a certain kind of outrage to keep people attached to them. That was... Uh, I don't think intentional, but worked out extremely well for the Proud Boys and is one reason why they, they saw a, a pretty extreme rise. And so even though it started out that way, it did, it did attract a bunch of disaffected people in urban areas generally. And then depending on where you were, like the Atlanta, Miami, and LA chapters were significantly more diverse than the Tennessee chapters, racially diverse, oh, uh, wow. which, you know, maybe is unsurprising. Yeah, sure, definitely. But, but you also saw political differences as a result in the beginning, which was, you know, for someone like Gavin, he is a cosmopolitan person from New York City who is married to, a, you know, a Native American woman, right? Like Gavin, Gavin doesn't care, right? Like Gavin is not particularly concerned about the white nationalism angle, except insofar as he like likes to feel superior to other people and, and uses that as a kind of like comedic, quote unquote, inroad to doing that. But yeah. Definitely. This is revelatory of one of the, well, one of the many tensions that seem to exist among the Proud Boys at the very least, and probably other right-wing groups too, but but specifically in talking about, this this is kind of dovetailing into their obsession with the West, because that's, you know, they sort of call themselves unapologetic Western chauvinists, and yet they're, you know, they're using, as you say, this kind of like a rhetoric of victimization, you know, kind of talking about how they are, you know, being, uh, they are the downtrodden in some way, shape, or form, and yet from like a material standpoint, like they actually have a pretty a pretty large amount of privilege and power and also they're they they come from this standpoint of you know also extolling the the strength and the greatness of the west so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how that 
that tension between the you know what you call the the West's simultaneous strength and vulnerability in your article. How exactly does that play out in their in their rhetoric and their you know their public presentation of themselves? Well, you know, I think it's really about the slippage in what whiteness itself is um, in yeah. a lot of ways. So, the, I mean, the West very much is. I mean, A, a very modern invention. It wasn't really until the 50s that we see the concept of the West versus the East come to take shape in it. Ironically enough, takes shape in, you know, on the curriculums of the general election classes at Harvard, right? Like a very elite idea of the West as the birthplace of democracy. You know, all of these very, as Dan Walden at the University of Michigan points out, these very like maternal analogies that you get, you know, the milk nurse of civilization, <laughs> you know, all of these ridiculous things. Yeah, wow. But, you know, ultimately the, the West is, the way I talk about it in the article is the spatial conception of whiteness, right? Like it is the, the physical land domain of whiteness. If we understand, you know, nation states as being places that are tied to the lands, then whiteness is the cartography, you know, the, or the West rather is the cartography of, of whiteness. And there's a, a difference between, you know, the white nationalists who mean that in a very Kantian biological sense, you know, who think that that has something to do with genes. Uh, but then there's the alternative version of the Proud Boys, which sort of have a, interestingly enough, more theoretically sophisticated understanding of whiteness, even if that is accidental, you know, that it is about the way that you leverage power. It's about a position you have in modernity and in a, a political structure that looks like the United States. It's about the position you occupy within it. And by being pro-West, you know, you can, that, that anyone can do that, that anyone can make themselves a citizenship of the West and therefore a citizen of whiteness by adhering to a certain set of political values and by playing, playing the game of capitalism well. The, the Proud Boys, you know, they say that they are anti-racist or open to things. That's difficult to bridge with their position on the West, especially because, and, and it helps to put some context here, in Gavin McGinnis's memoir, The Death of Cool, one of the things he talks about is being in Asia and that people didn't really like it if you said pro-white, but they really liked it if you said pro-Western. And that was something that, that Asian people responded well to, in his words, right? Like, I, there is, I, I believe no part of this interaction happened in real life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> something something real that definitely actually happened. Definitely actually happened, yeah. No, but I think, and, and Gavin says, you know, I started to figure out that, that Western was a nice, polite way of saying white. And I think that if there's any truth to that story, it is the part where there is this idea that the West is something that anyone can become a citizen in, and it reflects the structural position of whiteness in modern society. So like in modern America, for example, that it reflects the structural position of whiteness without being tied to the biological category as right, white nationalists right. envision whiteness. So like, it's not a genetic thing. It is not inherent at the moment of your birth that anyone can become a citizenship in white into the West and that that grants you the same privileges that we understand whiteness to have structurally. So wow. it's kind of this idea that anyone can be a proud boy and, and the proud boys actually do. I mean, maybe you can speak more to this, but it does seem to be like a slightly more racially diverse men's club than, you know, than others that are out there. And part of that is enacting this idea of westernness that westernness is just enacting certain kinds of structural violences and 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 being atop that hierarchy right yeah and so as long as you are willing to play the game of modernity 
and and let and let the chips fall where they may to be clear the proud boys had a separate set of rules for black proud boys so like i'm not you know the the oh. the whole like maybe we're not racist thing is totally out the window and those <laughs> right. those okay. rules consisted of things like you know you're not allowed to complain about racism just fucking take it right just deal oh, with God. it because oh. if you if you bring your own positionality into this right like if you remind us that there's an exteriority to whiteness that we're supposed to care about then we can no longer proceed in our unadulterated pride in the West. And, and so that disrupts kind of what we're trying to do here. So as long as you're willing to not talk about it, um, and you're willing to take whatever hand you're dealt, knowing full well that you may be dealt a shitty hand because of your race, then you can be one of us. Wow. Right. Yeah, I think it touches on like a broader phenomenon in right-wing rhetoric right now that th- there's this idea of like the right-wing populism that is kind of motivating Trump's base that's motivating the base of a lot of other white nationalist politicians throughout the world is grounded in a popular movement towards like restoring hierarchies that are perceived as uh, breaking down or perhaps like giving a few more people access to like enacting the the violence that those hierarchies permit. It's it's a it's a really fascinating way of feigning popular revolt or 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 popular struggle against a broader hypercapitalist neoliberal power structure that doesn't actually break it down it just kind of gives a few more people access to its power right yeah and and i think you know adolf reed jr has a really nice piece about that about the the politics of race on, on the left broadly but you know one of the points he says is like i'm not convinced that any kind of redistribution is the same thing as change for exactly that reason. I don't think that, you know, trickle down economics works better when it's multiracial than when it's not. And so, yeah, very much along those lines. Right. Yeah. We did want to ask about this idea of the libertarian aesthetic of freedom. Yeah. This is another one of those tensions that sort of exists in the Proud Boys ideology that I thought was really fascinating the way you played it out. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the Proud Boys aesthetic and how they you know, claim to be libertarians? They sort of say that we're libertarians except for the open borders part. Right. Yeah, we, we believe in freedom except for when it's not convenient for us is pretty much the <laughs> motto. Um, right. To go back to... Adolf Reed Jr. while I'm thinking about him, one thing he says is libertarianism is a shuck, that it's more an aesthetic than a politic because libertarians want the government to do only the things that they want the government to do. And they don't want them to do anything else. And they believe in a strong police state to be able to enforce the basis of individualism that they believe in, which is property rights. Right. And this, I mean, I I remember reading that and just like, oh, (laughs) <laughs> okay, fair enough. The chauvinism part, I think, is, is a good way to understand this. So the, the Proud Boys motto is, uh, I am a proud Western chauvinist and I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, and that, that pride going alongside the refusal to apologize. The, the Proud Boys freedom is very much a freedom from personal responsibility. Yeah. Right? Like that is what they want freedom from. Right. And so freedom from responsibility for their actions, right? Freedom from the responsibilities of democracy, the responsibilities of deliberation, of contention. So much of demagoguery is about creating these clearly defined us and then lines so that you don't have to think about it anymore, right? Like we all agree. And so we don't need to have the conversation anymore because we're good, right? And if you disagree, then you're them and that's gonna be a different story. And so, you know, when someone like Joey Gibson, who is uh, the head of Patriot Prayer, which has a lot of very close overlap with the Proud Boys in the Portland area, says something like, the time for deliberation is over. 
right? Like we're going to get our guns and go second amendment on your ass, right? Like <laughs> right, right. Uh, what, when they say that it very much shows you how it is about the freedom for them to do the things they want to do. And that any imposition of other people's will of like other, other people's existence and the expectation that they may have to contribute beyond their own gratification, right? Like beyond the gratification of being a successful entrepreneur of like being wealthy of getting the things they want anything that comes between them and that goal should be met with violent force right yeah and that of course is accomplished through you know you talk about this in in your article too there's that really revelatory conversation between uh ethan nordeen i think it is and uh, alex jones where (laughs) alex jones is saying you know you're saying they're the enemy they are enemy they've chosen it they've declared it what is the profile of the average antifa i kind of see the young meth head type but then I kind of see the professor type in the background directing them. <laughs> yeah, well, I always say they. it seems like they all kind of came from the same kind of like inbred family. You know, they just come out of these holes. You don't really know where they come from. Um, I'm sure they congregate from somewhere. But uh, yeah, they're all just, just schmeagle looking people um, or they're women. So, you know, they have the women on the front line and then they have these, you know, sketchy looking uh, cockroaches kind of, you know, wandering in the back with weapons and... Uh, and there's nobody really prominent in there, in their, um, in their, uh, within their stature there, and it's, it's very odd to say the least. If you had to define them, it's weakness and dishonor and what you don't want to be. It's like, wow, they don't even know they are the literal stench of cowardice. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 what I would embody is just demonically possessed meat suits of human beings. They're just. They aren't anything prominent. They're they're not. They don't have anything to show as a public figure. They're the enemy. They're the enemy. You you sort of deprive the them of their their humanity in a sense. They have no ability to deliberate, and therefore deliberation would be fruitless. You know, at the end of the day, anyway, right? Yeah, and, and as you know, uh, Robert Miller says, deliberation is suicidal at that point, right? right. Like the idea right. that you would spend time deliberating with evil or deliberating with something that cannot is not human enough to participate in the symbolic exchange required for deliberation. You know, like that's suicidal. Why would you do that? And and I think you see a much more extreme version of that in the the sort of alt-right proper, white nationalist proper part of politics now, which is, you know, if you believe in the idea of like Ben Shapiro-esque, there are two genders, end of conversation, anyone who doesn't believe that is mentally ill, and why would you argue with someone who is mentally ill? Uh, you know, you you get very quickly into the idea that all of these mentally ill people are now organizing and they are creating these areas of violence that are harming our community that are, you know, in, in these kind of like weird puritanical metaphors or like creating these, you know, miasmas of toxicity within communities. And, and, and you very quickly wind up at a much more authoritarian place uh, than you thought you could just judging by the aesthetic of we believe in freedom. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you that you touched on that too, because I, that actually, I mean, I think one of the one of the other things that we wanted to ask about here as well is actually kind of turning that on its head, because it's right. it's the that idea that you know they they hold this idea that deliberating with the people that they deem you know not human or you know just you know, mentally ill or whatever the case might be is not it's suicidal. It's not worth, even worth having the conversation. I mean, there are also people on the left too who would say the same thing about fascists, right? Like, what is the point of deliberating with somebody who is overtly fascist somebody who denies i mean who literally is like denying the humanity of other groups of people i have no explicit stake in this necessarily but i'm curious to hear what as somebody who does who has has debated debated fascists and who has deliberated with them what do you see as you know like 
Where it, where is the line between a fascist yeah. you debate and a fascist you you know uh, protect yourself from? Right. Well, I don't see those two things as as mutually exclusive. There are certainly people who I have debated who I actively protect myself from at the same time, and and I think that you know not to go all invitational rhetoric on on the situation, but you know I think to some extent debate is a tactic and debate is an aggressive one that that does seek to shut down something that. That currently exists, right? It seeks to take part of the argument. I guess it depends on, you know, heuristic or dialectic, and I hate myself right, right now so much. Um, <laughs> it's okay. No, no. no worries. I think it depends on, on the form of, of the debate as well. But, but the debate can tactically be used to end something without, you know, you can kill the idea without killing the person. Right. Um, and, I, and I think that that ha- absolutely has value in, for many reasons, not the least of which is that all of us are cursed in some way. And so for, for our own self-preservation, we should, we should be a little for, forgiving to, some, to a certain extent. But, but I don't think that that means that community self-defense is not a simultaneously necessary strategy. I think that most people who engage in that understands that a reactionary tactic is not the same thing as a, a politics that moves us forward, that deliberation might be necessary to build a new world, uh, but that if we don't want this much worse world over here, then we probably need something else outside of that. And I don't want to get a, a you know an angry Vats Critnet post in, in my inbox about this, but you know rhetoric actually can't shape everything, uh, and so sometimes you do need things outside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's like a tension that we come back to a lot on this show is is the line between rhetoric and deliberation and materialist politics and organizing and where where do the two intersect um, and where do they not and. I mean, I think that to some extent there are enemies facing, you know, the the overall habitability and human equality on this planet. There are enemies that are that are not human. They're corporate. They're I mean, I mean, even the the climate itself is a non-human enemy. Uh, that that, that <laughs> I, made it into one yeah, yeah right that, that i mean of course we need to re- we need to recover the agency of specific responsible agents and we need to debate people about these issues but i guess i just i have a persistent question about where is the line between dehumanizing rhetoric and just like smart organizing that leverages material power and that names enemies clearly I think there are two ways I think about it. One is the we have a saying in debate, framework makes the game work. Yep. Uh, you know, and the, the way you frame the discussion says a lot about whether or not it's worth having. So right. for example, people would often ask me if I would debate Richard Spencer. And I said, I will only debate Richard Spencer on whether or not Richard Spencer deserves a platform. That was the only <laughs> question I wanted to debate with him, right? Because yeah. you're going to make an argument you should have a platform. Then worst case scenario is that you win that. You know, but I mean, that's yeah, not the right. same thing as giving you a platform. It's right. just not. It's, it's in fact saying you shouldn't have one. And I think that when when the argument is something that the public overwhelmingly disagrees with us about, you know, so if you are, for example, a socialist, the vast majority of of the voting public uh, perhaps disagrees that they think that that full socialism is the way forward. You, you sort of don't have a choice. You have to debate. You know, you need to debate that question. And you're not going to normalize it because that is normal. That is what most people think. And so the idea that you're risking spreading an idea by ceding the status quo to the norm is, I think, a little silly. And I I think the second thing is to the extent that dehumanizing rhetoric is possible, there is also the the pessimistic strain of theory that sort of concedes that part and doesn't really care. You know, it's very often that people will start out with the you know, some kind of statement about my lack of humanity or, or to say, you know, what are you, some kind of it, some sort of, uh, what's the, la- the last one thrown at me, genderless transsexual. 
Uh, and oh. so I was like, you know, yes, you know, but you still have to share the world with me. And then, you know, you can call me a subhuman all you want. And honestly, I'm not particularly invested in, in my ontology as a human, uh, but that <laughs> right. turns out to not actually give you any sort of authority that you think you have. Uh, and so I think, you know, you can go one of two ways with it. But yes, it does require a, a careful and, and very prepared response. Otherwise, it, yeah, it could backfire. Debate can easily backfire, uh, and as well as, you know, black block tactics and any other tactic can backfire. So it's about how you deploy it responsibly. Yeah, I, I like that answer a lot. And I think that that kind of helps explain why, you know, it's it's sometimes really easy. Like, I think people like Ben Shapiro actually understand that point very well. You know, like, I mean, as somebody who, you know, does a lot of debates and things, but really is only doing it with like, you know, celebrities on like the liberal center, essentially, or, you know, people right. who are like easy targets who don't really know what they're getting into. And, you know, who are like, just don't know exactly how to debate with some like a huckster like Ben Shapiro or, you know, or any other numerous examples. Yeah. This pressing belief we have that only the fascists are capable of making their arguments in such a way with the ethos and pathos required to make them stick. And I just don't agree with that. Yeah. They're not very good at this. Yeah. <laughs> no, no that, and that's good. To, that's good to know. I'm actually genuinely curious to hear from your like, because I mean, just just from perusing your Twitter, like you, you get a lot of reply guys from um, from these various, you know, like right wings and things like that. Oh, it's cursed! A hundred percent of my reply guys are white nationalists. I live yeah. the worst world. Oh boy, I my condolences sincerely, but but it also like I don't know. I've seen not that I've just been like creeping on your Twitter, obviously, but like it seems like there are some people who have like gotten into your mentions who actually do. Like a couple of people who are clearly like more on the conservative side, you know, maybe not full out like right wing, but who have like who at least like treat you with dignity and like, have you know, come to concede a few of the points that you're making. So I guess from your perspective, like has persuasion worked when you've actually been doing, you know, debate with with white nationalists? It, it works in two ways. One is people who just weren't that convinced in the first place and they've never heard the other side of the argument. And then you say it and they're like, oh, that makes way more sense. And oh. it's like, hmm, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but those are very rare. And, and the second way, which is much more common, but honestly exhausting, but someone ought to do the work to be honest is that if you have a relationship with someone that's about the only way that you can successfully persuade them right, you know I right, we know this with right. you know social media studies and twitter studies that show that if someone follows you and you follow them back you're way more likely to be able to correct them than if you don't have a follower relationship with them uh, that's very true on an interpersonal level too yeah, and so a lot right. of those folks are people who have been following me who started out very mean and then over three or so years have gradually come around. And, and I think that that is valuable work. I think that it's work that if everyone was doing just, you know, as part of our pedagogical responsibility to the world, if that was something that we were all doing more of, I think that the world would be an infinitely better place because it is very draining labor to be one of the only people out there doing it. That's yeah. Little thank you for your service. Yeah, no, seriously, thank you for your service. That's I mean that in the most unironic way possible. And it's funny, too, because it leads to some unexpected moments. Like, uh, for example, I was a proud boy came out of a wild proud boy appeared on my timeline. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and literally showed up with a 30 minute video where he had recorded himself talking about my very old medium articles oh uh, about the proud boys and was like basically like answer for your crimes of calling us white nationalists. <laughs> 
Sounds extremely wow. normal and well-adjusted. Yeah, yeah. Just a- normal and well-adjusted. And to be fair, I never called them white nationalists. I said that they were a pipeline for white nationalist recruitment and that you could think of them as white nationalists if you had a more flexible conception of what it meant to be white, Right. Um, which isn't quite the same thing. And I mean, my first response was, Gavin already tried to bring a lawsuit for this, and I don't know why you think you're going to be more successful getting me to change my mind. <laughs> right. The second thing is that a bunch of proud boys who are now white nationalists because the pipeline is real, uh, jumped in my mentions to be like, I'm sorry, I'm literally a white nationalist and the Proud Boys are absolutely white nationalists. (laughs) Oh my God. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's validation if I've ever heard it. Owned by their own logic. What? That's ridiculous. No, we're not. You're just lying. And he's like, not only am I not lying, I founded this chapter of the Proud Boys. And here are pictures of me and Gavin McGinnis. And the Proud Boys are absolutely white nationalists. This is literally the Spider-Man pointing at (laughs) Spider-Man. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of amazing. And it's just like, I hate everything about this interaction. But at least I don't have to say it now. So right, yeah. But it is very revelatory, too, I think, of just what you're arguing in the article, right? Which is that idea that Proud Boys, at the very least, seem to have some kind of understanding of politics and, like, material, like leveraging material power. Like, they, you know, they, they understand that, although it's... It's interesting that that's when you said earlier that they were more focused on, you know, sort of like the West as like a spatial temporal zone rather than, you know, necessarily like a focus on race. Yet that there seems to be like a backslide into that almost a little bit. They're like the soil part of blood and soil. But then eventually like blood becomes part of the equation again, I guess. Yeah. And and because, you know, whether or not you believe in heritability as a genetic phenomenon or a cultural phenomenon, which it is both your citizenship that you get from your parents by virtue of being born to them is heritable in exactly the same way your eye color is, um, which is to say it is passed down. I, you know, but, but whether or not you think about whiteness as heritable culturally or genetically, it leads you to still say things like Gavin once tweeted, do we really think that an immigrant from Africa will fit into the U.S. as well as an immigrant from Europe? You know, and it's like, it's not biologically racist, I guess. It's culturally racist, right. yeah. but what is the difference? Yeah, good point. Yeah, I think just to come back to like what the value is of doing this work of debating, I think the other thing that's really valuable is just modeling good argument yeah. and, and, and getting good arguments and, and good responses to this kind of propaganda to propagate. And so I think it's really important to do it for that reason. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, there was there was only one time. So generally, I, I keep a very low profile. I don't publicize these things. Nobody knows who I am. And I intend, you know, I, I keep it that way to, sure. you know, nobody cares about me and I intend to keep it that way. <laughs> and because then nobody follows me to these debates. You know, nobody right. wants to come see me. And so nobody goes and watches whatever Nazi programming because they want to see what I have to say, gotcha. uh, which is great. Yes. But there was one one instance in which one of the local three percenters who organizes these open carry rallies at the at the state capitol and one of his, like, the people who go to these things, like, show up with semi-automatic rifles to the Women's March, you know, just, like, great. I'm not saying shooter waiting to happen, because that maybe is liable, but, I, I you know, right, right. I'm thinking it. <laughs> Alle- allegedly, yes. Parody. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, he posted this big thing on Facebook that was, like, basically said that I am uh, the head, literally the head Gestapo agent in Madison. That's literally the word to use. <laughs> Uh, and, and that my primary purpose is to rile up violence against conservatives. That that's what I do. So apparently this person has literally never heard of me or anything I do, but fine. Oh, my uh, God. And, 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 you know, that that's what I do, that I rile up all of this violence. And, and you know, 
there were comments that were just like, shoot them, right? And that's those are certainly not the first death threats I've ever gotten, but they were certainly the first ones I got that were from down the street. God, and yeah. so I thought, well, that's not ideal. Uh, and so he, in this post, says that he is challenging me to a debate. And I was like, well, I guess we're doing this debate uh, because I feel like if I say no to this debate, I'm going to die. So yeah. we're doing this debate because... If you want to have a symbolic exchange with me, maybe you'll think of me as human and then maybe you won't kill me. I don't know. We'll see how that works out. Yeah. But all of this is to say it was a, a very basic, uh, he, he was a libertarian, so a, a Rousseauian, individualist, Lockean libertarian <laughs> is how he described it. And I am obviously not that. And so we did a debate at the university um, and some people came. And, and, and so one way that debate also functions is to hype people up. You know, like when you oh, yeah. get to be in a room with someone who has threatened almost everyone in that room with violence at one point or another, uh, either through their politics or through Facebook posts like an idiot trying to get the FBI to show up at your door. Either way, you know, when you get in a room and it's like, I am going to body you up on your beliefs and I'm going to be merciless because frankly, this is what you deserve at this point. That can feel really, really energizing for a room full of people who have had to sit at the margins and been the target of this person's harassment. And so I don't think we should sell short what a what a well-placed debate can do to to rev up the public. Yeah. Wow, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think you've really usefully illustrated the ways in which deliberation and, de well, deliberation debate, not the same thing. Sorry, I almost conflated those two. Um, that debate is a... Is a the conditions under which debate is a really useful tactic. Just to bring in a little uh, uh, current event uh, news hit as well, because the Proud Boys just had, uh, they have just been in the news over the weekend at the time of this recording, they had a, uh, a rally out in Portland where they were essentially, they were trying to plan this sort of like, this massive clash with Antifa or with anti-fascist organizers out in, out in Portland. And seemingly the tactic that has been, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of buzz around the Internet from a whole bunch of different sides, which we, we don't need to get all into the, the internal politics there. But people came dressed up as bananas. You know, they did what, we, what they were calling banana block. There was that uh, socialist Waluigi meme that went viral on, uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. People were just basically showing up in costume, basically just having like a what looked like, you know, in some locations at least, kind of like a gigantic party, and and um, to seemingly to make the fascists look ridiculous, right? Yeah. So, what did you think of that tactic and and the kind of overall spectacle of how the anti-fascists in Portland approached that situation? Well, I'm a I'm a big believer, having kind of watched the the dialectic between symbol and violence sort of oscillate back and forth for a while now. And I'm a big fan of the idea that the more violence we inflict, the more blowback we get, not just yeah. from the right, but also from the state. Yeah. Um, whether or not you want to say that those are meaningfully distinct uh, is another question. Right. The Proud Boys do consider themselves to be extensions of the police. They, right. In a Proud Boy magazine article, it was described as forces to go in when the police are forced to stand down uh you know those pesky civil liberties <laughs> oh boy down. yep yeah <laughs> they're always getting in the way ah shoot <laughs> um you know but but what we do have are, are people who are willing to engage in a in a good deal of violence and if someone is going to you know and, and so i do think that the more that we escalate the more they escalate because that's just sort of how it goes at this point they control a lot more of the media financially they have the power to disseminate things you know prager you can make something trend just pay for a twitter trend right and all of a sudden their video about how the left or the real kkk or whatever <laughs> you know is trending on twitter even though nobody's watched it yet yeah and so i think that to some extent we do need to be smart and strategic and that you know their beliefs are ridiculous they should be met with ridicule 
Yeah. Uh, and so I do think that that things like Antifa Waluigi, I mean, I thought it was amazing. I mean, yeah. way to pick the most unlikable but impotent character. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, love, it was great. Love Waluigi. Yeah, yeah. of course. Because it's yeah. like, you're not unlikable and evil. You're unlikable and, like, just sort of sad. <laughs> Well, we do, we definitely differ politically on our views on Waluigi. He's my favorite character. I always play him in uh, in Mario Kart. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but yeah, but you're right. Yeah, sorry. I'm gonna get canceled. I'm gonna get a bunch of a bunch of flack for this on on Twitter and my email. I'm sure. I mean, and my partner's the same way. They, they always play Waluigi, and frankly, I think that it's abuse. <laughs> <laughs> it's violence. That is violence to the sensibilities. If, yep. Look, if milkshaking is terrorist, then playing Waluigi in in Mario Kart is abuse. This is how this works. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, that's good. Well, I think that probably about does it for us. Would you like to plug any of your current projects or any of your uh, your Twitter at the very least? Um, oh, gosh. So, yes, I will plug my Twitter. It's at not colloquial. I will warn you all in advance that my Twitter is at this point functionally a, a piece of performance art <laughs> that is dark, only consists of Nazis uh, and like three people from from my university and real life. Uh, so, you know, follow at your own peril. But yes, uh, my Twitter is at not colloquial. Awesome. Great. We will link to that in the show description. Yep, thank thank you so much for being with us, CV. Yeah. And uh, best of luck with uh, with all of your work in the future, both in terms of like scholarship as well as, you know, like any future debates. You know, we'll, we'll we've got your back 100 percent. Debate me, coward. Yeah. I mean, that's that's all you need to tell them. <laughs> that's right. Thank you so much. And, you know, if I can do a, a quick, you know, shout out, if you are looking for ways to support things like this, you know, reach out to your to your local IWW, perhaps find some tenant empowerment you can do uh, or some bail fund work. That is, you know, that's where my life is at. So I'm going to briefly mention Excellent. This. Absolutely. Thank Great. you for plugging that. All right. Thank you so much for being with us, CV. Yeah, thank you all. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Caitlin Rossi, Colleen Storm, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.